You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. everyone and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities and solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. Imagine a world where you're always one step ahead of cyber threats, where your defenses are impenetrable because you see what others don't. Welcome to Team Cymru's Threat Intelligence Solutions. With real-time access to the world's largest threat intelligence data ocean, they enable you to turn the tables on attackers. Transform your security from reactive to proactive through accelerated threat hunting and incident response, made possible through automation. Empower your team with visibility and insights to start defending your organization like never before. Team Cymru, be the hunter, not the hunted. Learn more at team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. That's team-cymru.com slash cyberwire. This was kind of a fun one, kind of an interesting one, since Avaya and specifically their their VoIP phones are, you know, so popular and so widely deployed. That's Steve Pavolny. He's the head of advanced threat research at McAfee. The research we're discussing today is titled Avaya Desk Phone, Decade-Old Vulnerability Found in Phones Firmware. We got interested in this specific platform, you know, one, because obviously it is so ubiquitous and it's used so globally, and two, because it's primarily deployed in, in businesses and large enterprises uh, as, as a desk phone. And, you know, as a research group, um, Advanced Research or ATR, you know, we we kind of approach new projects from two, two perspectives. The first being we're trying to uncover and, you know, quote unquote, burn as many security flaws or vulnerabilities as we can across software and hardware, hardware platforms. So from that perspective, being able to make a big impact across this industry of deployed devices was really interesting for us and, um, and made for engaging research. On the flip side, we're a small, dedicated team. So obviously we can't tackle everything. So part of what we do with any piece of research, uh, once we find something that's relevant is in addition to just getting the flaw or vulnerability fixed, we actually work to build a full end-to-end demo, show what the actual bad guys could do with it, and then you know really get that awareness out there and make sure that people understand what the impact is. And it's that level of awareness and insights into the problem space that's almost more important than just fixing individual bugs in the end. 
So long story short, it gets, we, we kind of got interested in it ultimately because of how widespread it was and because of the, the areas that it's used primarily in, in large enterprises. Yeah, I can't help picturing in my mind, uh, you know, someone from your research team sitting there at their desk and, you know, glancing over at the phone and <laughs> their eyebrows raising and going, hmm. <laughs> what, could, what could you do with this network connected device that is uh, recording calls and listening to calls, right? Right, right. Exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, let's let's dig in here. And for folks who might not be familiar with um, how these phones work and, and sort of what's going on with them, can you give us a, a little overview? Yeah, so these are, uh, of course, network-connected devices, which is why they're called VoIP phones or voice over IP, is uh, all of the uh, all of the data that's transmitted for your calls is going across the network, um, similar to many phones, but uh, across an IP-based network here. And ultimately, you know, what that means is if, if someone is able to get onto the same network where these phones are deployed, which is typically an internal business network or sometimes even a guest network uh, if they are connected to it and is able to compromise something in the phones, you know, they might be able to actually uh, pivot to other devices on the network, control all the phones at once, or ultimately what we did with the scenario is uh, leveraging the ultimate or the, the vulnerability that was found and eventually basically using it to tap and record network traffic, including calls. We thought that was probably the most interesting scenario from the threat actor's perspective in terms of being able to not just, you know, surreptitiously steal call data or record call data, but also potentially to deploy something like malware to all the devices or ransomware. And, and you know, in a large organization that heavily relies on their enterprise phones, and there's a, there's a fairly good chance that that ransom could be effective um, while, while they keep users locked out of their phones. So we kind of approached it from that perspective of, of both delivering a, a payload of ransomware as well as exfiltrating call data, you know, over the Internet. Yeah, it strikes me, too, that this is a device, like we said, it sort of sits on someone's desk and in a way it's kind of invisible. It's sort of out of sight, out of mm-hmm. mind. As long as it's working, it's not something you really think about very much. People forget that these are just computers, right? And Philippe um, Lillard, who is the primary researcher on this one, you know, looked at this thing instantly. And instead of seeing a, a phone that makes calls, he sees a computer sitting on his desk that's plugged into the network. And so this is similar to any other type of IoT device now that has become network-based. And of course, phones have been have been uh, connected to networks for a very long time now. But you're, you're absolutely right. This is typically an oversight both from a security perspective as well as from just a uh, monitoring perspective. So it makes for an enticing target for cyber criminals looking to you know pivot and find a way into the network uh, makes for a really ideal type of a target. Well, let's walk through together um, what uh, your team did here. There's uh, there's some interesting uh, aspects to it, both hardware and software. Um, where do you want to begin? So first and foremost, we you know we take the lazy approach whenever possible, or the low hanging fruit if you want to be politically correct. You know, we're <laughs> trying to look at the network interfaces. We're trying to see if uh, the software or firmware can be just freely downloaded over the internet. Uh, in this case, we, we could actually access the firmware um, just by downloading it on the internet. But with many cases and many of our uh, of our research projects, you have to be a customer or you'd have to use some social engineering to get access to the firmware. Or maybe it's only delivered, you know, um, sometimes even in physical medium. So in this case, we were able to get the firmware easily but the researcher wanted to be able to 
essentially access the underlying operating system and, and be able to do some interactive testing with it. So instead of just testing the firmware for vulnerabilities or flaws, um, similar to a normal software project, he actually opened up the phone, physically opened it up, and started working with uh, the actual hardware and the boards inside the phone to see what he could learn. And ultimately, had he not taken this approach, we would not have come across the vulnerability that exists in the phone for over 10 years. So the process here was open up the phone and do what's called connecting to uh, debug ports. And often there's, there's hardware interfaces on the inside of a, of a computer like this that the developers either leave in there intentionally so that they can debug issues in the field, or sometimes uh, you know they're doing QA or debugging in the manufacturing process and they forget to close them down and they can be accessed later. Long story short, what this means is, you know, a researcher, whether you know the uh, a white hat researcher or a black hat researcher, can ultimately access. Uh, interfaces to the phone and back-end system on the phone that they probably shouldn't be able to access. In this case, uh, Philippe was able to directly connect to the phone's hardware and use it to load uh, a root or kind of a system admin level shell on the box just by uh, soldering some wires on there. And we spent a lot of time kind of in, in the blog when we released this research talking about and educating, you know, people who are interested in this type of research on just how you do that, how you go about connecting to those hardware debugging interfaces, uh, what's interesting, what are you trying to retrieve from them? And ultimately it leads to the fact where you can start to poke around now on the operating system and the file system of the computer in, in the case of phone. And what Philippe was able to do then by having a root shell was do some basic vulnerability scanning and some uh, some privileged uh, poking around, I guess, for lack of a better term, to see what he could find. Uh, ultimately, what he found was uh, a piece of code that had not been updated in, in over 10 years. He could tell that from the copyright uh, on, the, uh, on the banner of the code. And that led him to start to search for, you know, more of an existing vulnerability versus trying to find something new since this was uh, such old code and such unupdated code. And then finally to come full circle, you know, and, and we're keeping it fairly high level for now, but to come full circle, you know, he was able to find a vulnerability that had been publicly reported in some open source code about 10 and 11 years ago, uh, which is the DHCP client responsible for providing an IP address to the phone. And Avaya had actually taken that public open source code, forked a version of it and put it in their product. And unfortunately, the version of the code that they implemented in their product was the one that did not have the patch in it. So there was some oversight from the vendor here in terms of baking in the existing security, the patches that were available, and that went unnoticed for a period of 10 years until Philippe kind of stumbled across this bug. So this wasn't a matter of, uh, you know, me having a, a 10-year-old phone sitting on my desk. This was uh, an old version of some open source software that was just still being reused in modern code. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, these, these phones are still uh, sold and widely distributed. I, I want to say there is an end-of-life plan for them coming up here, but they're still one of the most popular uh, desk 
smartphones used uh, across major enterprises, this specific version. And yeah, exactly as you said, this is not uh, not an old phone. It's, it's a newer phone with an older code base on it. And had Avaya properly forked the patched version of the DHCP uh, client into their phone, uh, this vulnerability would not have been there. And we would have had been looking for you know a new vulnerability or, or what's called a zero-day vulnerability, uh, something that hadn't been reported to the industry before. So this is kind of a unique scenario where actually, you know, a, a, a vulnerability that's quite well known from an industry perspective was completely unknown from a product perspective. And um, because of that, you know, there's actually existing exploit code out there already written to take advantage of this this exact vulnerability. So for, for the researcher, it was quite easy to, you know, once he found that, uh, build a proof of concept and, and take that to the extent of, of fully compromising the phone. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about what the impact of that exploit is. Yeah, absolutely. And before we get to that, I think it's worth pointing out that from a hardware side of things, um, this was not a, a matter of needing uh, a significant investment or spending a lot of money on, on the, the gadgets that you needed to sort of hose yourself up to this phone. It, it was not expensive. Right. No, the, the expensive part is the, the time it takes to learn the skills, right? The, mm. the overhead it takes to become good at, um, you know, if you look at some, some of the, uh, the, the blog content and, and how the researcher actually connected to the phone, you'll see there's some very, very fine little soldering wires involved there. You have to be able to, you know, analyze the internal components of the hardware and know which chip is what and which board is what and how to connect different pins uh, and pin but from an investment perspective, uh, I think our net net investment was, you know, probably in the range of five or ten dollars uh, for some copper wire, and um, you know, we did have some additional hardware that kind of facilitated and made the process a lot easier, but not overall uh, necessary to being able to connect to the internals of a of a computer and pull useful information. And just like you know, any anything else, the more you spend, the easier it gets. Uh, and generally speaking, but um, but you're absolutely right. This is something that most people can do for pretty low cost. Now, the phone system itself was running a Linux system, um, which mm-hmm. is is interesting. Uh, certainly not uncommon, but but opens up all sorts of avenues for exploration there as well. Absolutely, and this is pretty common for um, you know embedded devices and IoT in general. Um, especially, you know, phone systems will run Linux or some kind of a, a version of a Linux kernel here. And you know, that once once Philippe had access to the kernel and had elevated privileges on the operating system, uh, you know, there's two approaches to take. One is to look for existing vulnerabilities, which again is kind of that low hanging fruit. If you find something that's already out there that hasn't been patched or fixed, in a way that's just as good as finding a zero-day vulnerability, uh, you know that, that nobody knows about because in in practice uh, it's exploitable in the exact same way, and a patch still needs to be developed. So that's one approach to take, and and something we typically do when we drop into uh, you know some elevated privileges like uh, on, on a Linux kernel here. On the flip side, you know, had that not been successful. There are a number of tools that allow you to test and to penetration test and, and look for vulnerabilities and exploit them on both Windows and Linux and, and uh, other uh, operating systems at the level we're talking about here. What is the range of um, possible exploits that you all explored here? What, what sort of things were you able to do when you had that root level? 
Well, once we had the root shell um, on on what's called the EEPROM, um, which is one of those hardware interfaces to the operating system, the vulnerability was pretty quickly found. So, you know, again, Philippe just kind of, after looking around a little bit and seeing a copyright of 2004 to 2007, kind of got wind of the fact that we were running some, some or that the device was running, running some pretty old code here. And the vulnerability itself, um, you know, for, for researchers in the, in, in the industry, probably already familiar with it. I know Philippe kind of uh, remembered it, uh, just kind of triggered his memory based on um, having seen it a number of years ago. But either way, uh, you know, at this point, you could run a full end-to-end vulnerability scan, uh, you know, looking for all uh, existing CVEs or vulnerabilities that have been published, see what comes up. We really kind of stopped once we found this vulnerability and, you know, the researcher decided, you know, why go any further? We have a root shell on the device. We've got a vulnerability that's unpatched and we've got a target that's deployed, you know, very widely in our enterprise environments. And we decided then to kind of pivot and start using that to build the demo. Ultimately, as I mentioned earlier, we thought there was two really impactful scenarios here and we can go into detail on both of them. The first one was, of course, we built a proof of concept. Uh, just to demonstrate the vulnerability and, and, uh, the, the Philippe used, uh, I think he used my face to load on the startup screen or the splash screen of the phone just to show that he had, uh, you know, remote code execution could replace images on the phone. I don't think any realistic attacker is going to be so kind as to tip you off that way, but it was a great proof of concept. From a realistic perspective, you know, we decided there's two really tangible scenarios that someone would use if they found this vulnerability unpatched. The first, as I mentioned, would be deploying malware or ransomware and kind of sky's the limit in terms of what you could do here. You could use it just simply to to gain a backdoor uh, on a number of internal systems, to use it as a device to pivot to more critical systems on the internal network, especially if the phone system is on uh, protected, you know, kind of a non-open, non-guest network uh, where there's other sensitive devices. This becomes a really interesting kind of permanent or semi-permanent backdoor into your network. That's one way that, you know, we see a lot of uh, vulnerabilities and exploits being used is just as as backdoors in the network and and kind of maintaining maintaining persistence there uh, to attack other targets. From the actual phone perspective, we thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if you could actually enable the internal microphone uh, through the use of this exploit and either call or record or spoof calls outbound? And that's the demo we built and kind of run in our lab here is, uh, we exploit the vulnerability to turn on the internal microphone, and essentially, it'll not only capture, of course, call data when a call is being made, but it can just capture ambient room noise or background noise. So if this thing is deployed on the table of your boardroom uh, for a critical boardroom meeting and the vulnerability is exploited, we can be listening and even exporting all of that data, all of that audio data uh, out of the network back to, you know, a server or computer that we control. And we thought that was a really interesting kind of targeted scenario for surveillance and spying uh, activities, uh, as well as gaining kind of privileged information um, to a, what should be really kind of a, uh, a highly confidential conversation. Uh, and those are the two demos that we built. So, so really we kind of have a simple demo where Philippe just kind of speaks and talks into the phone and about a second or two later, you kind of see the call recording happening in real time and, and the data being exfiltrated out over the internet. 
in order to uh, exploit this phone, to get the access that you got, was it necessary for you to have access to the hardware itself, or could this have been done remotely? Uh, that's a great question, Dave. So we, we decided to, the, the answer is no, we did not actually have to have access to the hardware. And that's really important here because um, obviously it would mitigate the findings significantly if uh, if you needed to sneak into a building, open up a phone and <laughs> tap it. At right. that point, you might as well just install a, a tap, right? So this is a network-based attack, meaning you don't have to have any physical access to the phone. You just need to be on the same network. The reason we spent so much time on the hardware side of things is more from an educational perspective. So we want to be able to teach researchers who are interested in helping secure this space and, 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 and interested in finding finding additional vulnerabilities and responsibly disclosing them to be able to build the skill sets and understand the approach that goes into hacking into these kinds of devices. And with that often is the hardware approach. So had we not been able to download the firmware freely over the internet, and, you know, if Avaya decides to lock down those firmware, you know, downloads in the future, this would be the tactic or the technique that the bad guys would actually use to figure out whether there are vulnerabilities on the system and ultimately how to exploit them. So, so really gaining access to the hardware interface is just the means to the end uh, to understanding what the attack surface is and how to pull it off. It makes it easier to get the firmware, the file system, the memory content to do that kind of research and analysis. But ultimately, as far as exploitation, it's completely unnecessary. You just need to have access to the network that these de- devices are deployed on. Now, you all did reach out to Avaya, and they were responsive, and they've since published a patch. Yes. Yeah, they've been a great partner to work with, and you know, we, we think that one of the things that sets us apart as a research organization is that McAvee's ATR, Advanced Threat Research, always, always works uh, with the vendor to do what's called responsible disclosure. So when we find a vulnerability, and, and sometimes we've been working with vendors well before we find a vulnerability through partnerships, in this case, we reached out to Avaya just as soon as we found the, the vulnerable code, and we had a number of ongoing discussions with them over the next few months while they worked on getting a patch ready and updated. And uh, we have to really commend them for the, you know, the speed they worked at, the way they embraced the research, um, you know, kind of the collaboration throughout the whole process. Really demonstrated what we always hope to achieve, which is that strengthening that researcher and manufacturer vendor relationship. And to me, that's really ultimately one of the most important things that we have the opportunity to change in this industry. Instead of just throwing the vendor under the bus and reporting bugs and, you know, and making, making the vendor look bad, what we're actually trying to do is, is change the paradigm so that we're now working as a team, as a single unit, and that the white hat research community comes together with the manufacturers, developers, and vendors and ultimately, we're doing the research that leads to the development and production of, of better and safer products. And this was a great example of that end to end. I'll just add that, um, you know, the patch was released in uh, late June of 2019. We did do both uh, static and dynamic testing of it uh, to confirm that the patch was effective and that the mitigations that we kind of recommended to Avaya were uh, properly implemented. And, um, you know, happy to say that that patch is effective. We think it's really important that especially large enterprises uh, prioritize the rollout of this patch. Uh, sometimes devices like this can be an oversight in a large corporate environment. 
And as we talked about earlier, phones tend to not be the primary type of computer system that your IT or stock uh, is actually patching. But you can kind of see from the impact statement, from the demo, and from the conversation we've had that these should be treated as just as sensitive as any other critical server in your environment, um, whether those are used as an access point or a pivot point or whether they're directly attacked. These, again, are uh, computer systems that allow you to gain privileged access into a, uh, a privileged network and ultimately to achieve some pretty nefarious purposes. So uh, we're strongly advising that anyone who uses these phones gets those patches updated uh, quickly after, after getting the patch tested. And I suppose there's, there's a bigger lesson here as well that... Um you know, even if you have your devices patched and up to date, that there could be things uh, still lurking in there that have yet to be discovered. Absolutely, it would be uh, it would be would be remiss to say that fixing one vulnerability would uh, overall make a product secure. Uh, and, and again, this this comes full circle to what we started the call with here, which is you know the the reason, the nature of why we do vulnerability research at McAfee is to push this industry forward as a whole, to encourage researchers to work with vendors, to do analysis of these types of products, to overall harden the attack surface, because we can guarantee that there are others out there, whether they're individuals, whether they're nation states, uh, whether they're groups of, of individuals working together that are well-funded, have significant resources and time that are attacking and, and looking for these exact types of flaws so it's kind of a race to see not only who can find them first, but but overall, who can be successful in this battle of securing products before vulnerabilities are found. And ultimately, that's our goal in this process. Our thanks to Steve Pavolny from McAfee's Advanced Threat Research Team. The research is titled Avaya Desk Phone, Decade-Old Vulnerability Found in Phone's Firmware. We'll have a link in the show notes. The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.